Okay, people, do you want to know what over 40 reading looks like? I, (laughs) well, first of all, I didn't think that there would be all these people in line for persuasion. So I was just kind of casually reading it slowly or listening to it slowly because I already had an in handbook going. So I thought I'll listen to that one. Usually there's not a big line for classics, but boom, in the middle of nowhere, it gets returned. And I was livid because they said, you got two weeks till you can get it again. So I go to my (laughs) shelf, almost like I brought this up whatever week. I go to my shelf and get this giant dictionary size. It looks like a Webster's Dictionary. Oh, no. It's just seven novels of Jane Austen and finished Persuasion. I should have, like, propped it up on pillows or something. And I was finished it at midnight last night. And, you know, it's a lovely book, and we'll talk about that later. But the cost is I woke up this morning (laughs) with my sciatic out, and I'm full dizzy. Like, I had to go to the chiropractor before I could do this. I had already plan b like, well, I guess I can still record with my eyes closed. Oh. Because I can't, I was, I was so dizzy. And then I would take a step and I'd be like, oh, nope, that, something's not good there. It's like, you know, your side, it's like your butt down through your leg. So <laughs> it's a hard life, y'all, when you're getting old. It's like a contact sport. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was comfortable at the time. I even was like, see, this isn't so bad. But this morning, I was like, so bad, so bad. <laughs> Welcome to Book Fair, a feast for every season of reading. We are a growing community of curious readers who share the excitement of books. We want to read together and feast together through the seasons of the year and the seasons of our lives, and we hope you join us. Welcome, everybody, to our final book club episode of season two and of 2022, and that is Jane Austen's Persuasion. Yay! Cue all the clapping. (laughs) So first, I would just love to hear y'all's history with it, how many times you've read it, and maybe just your quick overall thoughts about the book. Well, I have a a funny, I really was certain I'd read this book. And then I started to question it. And then I realized in just taking in all of our conversations of this year about how you get so much more when you read things later, or when you start and a work is just out of your wheelhouse. I think I read this book. I think this might've been the first Jane Austen I read. And I think I just read words, read words. And it It just didn't, like I didn't dislike it or like it or anything because then some things started to feel familiar, but I could not have told you what that book was about when I opened it more than anything. And so it was interesting to me to see that I had just read words on a page and had no idea what I'd read. And that was what it took to maybe get to a place where I was reading different kind of things and comprehending them and enjoying them. So at the time, I wouldn't have said I hated this book. I probably could have told you something, but I thought that was interesting to see myself, you know, 20 years later and go like, oh, I love this book. And I bet in 20 years, I'll know what it's about now. (laughs) (laughs) So you read it, you think you read it once like 20 years ago? Yeah, no, honestly, I think I read it in this giant book. Maybe I blacked (laughs) it out, but (laughs) because I'm... 
there were a few parts. There was a part where I turned the page and all of a sudden I was like, no, I did read it, you know, but it just, it didn't stick for me. Have you seen any of the movies? Not Persuasion. I've seen several of, of other ones. Um, okay. So I haven't seen the Netflix one or the other. I'm going to watch it tonight, though. The, the good one. <laughs> um, so I thought that was funny. Like, let the language wash over you. You might enjoy it in the moment, but it might not stick. And that's okay, because you can come back later and dive in again. Yeah, it's a layer. Layers count. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's like a good paint job. Yeah. <laughs> or a winter ensemble. <laughs> you just need layers. You need layers. So, so you read it this time. What's just a brief general overall thoughts about it? Um, I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know. I would love to know a little more of her internal monologue. Did she have a good attitude about all the things she was doing? I think she did. But I did not for her. <laughs> <laughs> it really bothered me. Her dad more than any of the other things in the book. It really did. Like if you've got a selfish sister, that's unfortunate. But if you've got a selfish parent, that's, and I mean, in older books and an older culture, I think an unpreferred child was, was a more common thing. We, sh we are shocked at the idea of an unpreferred child now, uh, but that was more common. I mean, we read, I mean, in the Bible, you read that, like you read that in all kinds of older things, but it, it really, I had to, I had to like, just stop for a minute. I just could not believe like, you don't prefer her because Why? Because she's a good person, because she's not vain, because she's not like, how could you think your own child wasn't pretty? I don't care what she looks like. My, my kids are the best looking kids on the planet, you know? <laughs> it, it made me so yeah. mad. And so then anytime the dad walks in the room for the rest of the book, I'm like, here's this guy again. <laughs> <laughs> so, Trisha, what's your history with this book? And what are your general overall thoughts? with this reading? So I think this is maybe reading four for me, um, maybe five. I'm not sure. Um, I love this book. I always enjoy reading it. I find Anne to be very inspiring. And even this time, I... So about halfway through, after the accident at Lyme, and that's about halfway through the book, there was part of me that was thinking, really, there's half of this book left and like not that much happens. So she's going to go back to Upper Cross. She's going to stay with Lady Russell. They're going to go to Bath. Then they're going to get together. And I kind of felt like, am I going to be bored? But I wasn't bored. Mm -hmm. So it kind of proved to me again that even when my mind was thinking, this next part isn't as exciting you know, am I really excited to do this journey again right now? As I just went chapter by chapter, the language, the way Austin writes, the humor, the insights, like there were more insights to be gained. There were more details to understand. Um, there was more nuance to see. And I wasn't bored. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that sounds great. I this is my fourth reading as well. And I only remembered that because I put it in my last Goodreads <laughs> review. And I rarely write, actually write reviews. So I'm glad I actually did one <laughs> this time. And I, 
it's when you know it's a a great book, capital G, because every time I read it, something else stands out to me. And my mind kind of just follows a different path each time. And I love that about it. Like the first couple of times, I'm just getting the story, the emotions, you know, the plot and everything. Um, the third time reading through, their growth really stood out to me and duty. Duty and Second Chances really struck me and hit me really hard. Just very deeply, I wanted to be more like that. Hmm. And this time through, of course, that's still there. And I can get another layer of that. And then I was able to take in other things about it that I just hadn't before. So I just, I think it's so lovely. And um, I'm I'm excited to dig into it with y'all. So one thing that occurred to me this time, more than others in reading it, because you were just talking about how much you didn't like Anne's father. And there was something this time that kind of made me question, is it realistic that Anne surrounded by so her mother who was apparently a very good solid person died when she was 13 or 14 and her dad you know i mean the first page tells us that vanity is the beginning and end of his character so i mean completely surfacey shallow hurtful judgmental preferential unwise father and both of her sisters are idiots and it just kind of struck me this time like is this realistic like is is it realistic that someone raised in a house from age 13 or 14 where that's everyone she's surrounded with is this solid of a human being so i would say yes but it's a trauma response that's Hmm. like when that's like when six-year-olds know how to make breakfast because no one's making a breakfast, you know? And, and the reason I can say yes, a hundred percent is I have a friend that I'm like, how are you together? Like, how are you together? (laughs) And it, there was something within this person that says like, it has to be me. It's going to be nobody. And I do think it's the influence of both her mother and lady Russell also though. And I would say with my friend, there was an external person in her life that that put that into her and let her see there's more than all this. And so I think as much as, you know, Lady Russell kind of messed her up in the beginning. I mean, I also, I do think like, but did she, I mean, it wasn't bad advice (laughs) for that time. You know, it's easy to say like you told her to do the wrong thing, but with the information known, like she obviously loved her. I mean, so I think Anne is so great because, and you know, you don't know a lot about her mom though, but I, you get that she was a little more like her mom. For sure. And I think the novel makes that very clear that these qualities of virtue and solidity in her character are from her mom and Lady Russell. Like that's definitely Mm -hmm. what the novel posits, but I guess there was just part of me at some point that was like, not that it can't happen, not that it's impossible, but just... (laughs) How like how likely is this? You know, because I get I think the behavior of the sisters really struck me this time. And I just thought, wow, like when Mary makes that decision, essentially throws a fit and so she can stay at Lyme instead of Anne. And I don't remember the phrasing, but the book essentially says that Anne says something like her sister's capricious non-judgment never bothered her more Mm -hmm. and it made me so angry this time Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And she's just so self-centered. And I mean, I don't know how Charles puts up with her. Like he seems, Uh he seems to, I mean, speaking of duty, I mean, I think Charles is an amazing picture of duty because he seems to just sort of (laughs) overlook some of her worst qualities and just kind of deal with them and look at her in the best light he can and go on and be happy. And if I was married to someone like that, I think I'd have a really hard time. <laughs> right. Well, and then Charles's conversation of like, hey, this guy's interested in you, Anne. And she's like, oh, she, he is not. That's ridiculous. Like, why would that be ridiculous? She's a great person, you know? That, And she just continued to bring it back up. Like, yeah. see, I knew. That was so dumb. He would never be. I mean, it wasn't a passing. It was like a huge thing of how dumb of an idea Charles had had. Yeah. Even yeah. though there was and a lot of And he went proof. from proposing to Anne, seeing her, you know, wanting to marry her, to marry. <laughs> right. He was probably every day like, man. <laughs> you know, and hearing y'all talk about this, I hadn't thought about this before, but just thinking about her family, I don't mean the whole story necessarily, but just in thinking about her family, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Cinderella. Yes, me too. This morning that hit me. Really? Oh my goodness. This morning. Did the book hit you or just that? Yeah. Cinderella tie. The Cinderella tie hit me with the sisters and the just treating her like a little piglet and do all the work and do all the things. It totally something just they both had one parental figure in their life that was grounding and had wisdom, not perfect, you know, but had wisdom and virtue and was able to instill that in them. They both had two ridiculous sisters and a ridiculous parental figure. And Sir Walter and Elizabeth and Mary, but especially Sir Walter, is almost so caricatured. He's almost, well, a caricature or like a stock character, almost. And some of her family characters in other books are sometimes like that. I'm thinking of Mrs. Bennett a little bit and Emma's dad a little bit. Yeah. But like you said, it's it's just, it doesn't quite go over that caricature line. Right. Like I read him and when I read his character, I believe there's a person out there. Yeah. Who. Oh, yeah. Is that. Like it's, and same with Emma's dad. Like. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that person exists, mm-hmm. even though it's extreme, like it's an extreme version in Emma's dad's case of, you know, hypochondria, but, and in this case of vanity, but I still believe him. I could not stop laughing about the Admiral being like, yeah, all those mirrors. Yes! I didn't really need that. <laughs> I mean, just have like the total opposite oh, man oh. entering this dressing room going like, <laughs> I literally pictured my dad at that moment walking into like his closet and somebody had put a bunch of mirrors up and he'd be like, what in tarnation? <laughs> you know? He's like, I'm happy with this little shaving mirror. Yeah. Who needs to see themselves? In the wall. That I avoid. (laughs) (laughs) Mirrors are for girls. (laughs) I mean, I laugh so hard. (laughs) So let's talk about Anne. What did you think about Anne? I kind of wanted her to pitch a fit at some point. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know we're probably not supposed to want that. Like she did the right thing, but I love how gentle she is. She is a gentle, quiet person. She's a soundboard for lots of people and she has a rich inner life. And I love, okay, so here's a little rant I typed up as I was reading this and I was like, you know, I stand by this. And so (laughs) I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, Because I love how Austin goes for it. She, unlike Fanny Price, you know, she has these, these characters that are maybe harder for a modern woman to relate to in some ways, but I, but I also don't think that's true at the same time. Oh yeah. I feel like there's someone in every family that takes on a little more of the load. I mean, when you look at Very often, just I've seen through my clients through the years, very often with aging parents, there's one sibling that takes on more of the care burden or that's the easiest place to see it. But I think it happens continuously. You have one one sibling that is just more like, well, I'm going to be the one to figure this out or I'm going to be the one that does this. And, you know, sometimes because they're bossy, but sometimes they're just duty driven. And when everyone else says no, I'm going to say yes, because it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. I found my, I found my rant. <laughs> I couldn't find it for a minute. Okay. So Austin's scope for what is feminine and womanly and good is much more diverse and inclusive than what is pushed on us today. Austin embraces the gentle, meek, nurturing, and sacrificial temperaments of, and natural aspects of women. And it is so refreshing to not be stifled by a girl boss attitude Or if you're not a female brute who can decimate five guys at a time with physics and a random metal stick, then you're not a strong woman. (laughs) Austin Austin populates her world with a beautiful kaleidoscope of women who have character arcs and, dare I say, glow-ups that bring today's Hollywood to its knees in confusion and emptiness. Off the soapbox. (laughs) You said glow up. My one of my favorite things about this era of um, books is the way they describe people in love. Like they said, like there's always someone that says, "Oh, you look better." You know, her dad asked if she'd been using something, and it was like she was in love again, or like allowed to feel those feelings again, or feeling more on top of her heart instead of the bottom. And it makes me think about the idea, like in Christ, like we are lovely because He's loved us. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, that's beautiful. So I s- watched a few like booktube reviews of this, and they were all united on the fact that it was so great when Anne finally followed her heart. <laughs> and so I wanted to talk about that for a minute. This might be a rant <laughs> episode for me. <laughs> Look out! <laughs> I have trigger warning on it. <laughs> so to me when it when I hear followed her heart it can mean different things but I think what it tends to mean a lot and especially in this context is a misunderstanding of what Anne does that follow her heart means she put herself first and stopped trying to please others and just went with what she felt was right in that moment is that a fair yeah in that moment is that a fair interpretation of that yeah yeah I think that something that Austin is doing in this book, and this has to do with follow your heart, 
because this is the beginning of the capital R romantic period or towards the beginning of it, right? Byron is huge in this time period. The Shelleys are huge right now. And this capital R romanticism is the beginning of this follow your heart thinking that we have today. And I think Austin is pushing back on that a little bit. Because when you look at Anne and her rich inner life, she is not making decisions based on her feelings, either at the beginning or the end. She's pretty steady about being reasoned and thinking about her duty and what is right. And there is a good example of that in this scene when she first sees Wentworth. Oh, oh, it just gets me every time that scene. And it's so short, you know? And then at the end, she's like, oh, it's over. <laughs> you know, it's it's happened. And so now I can move on. You know? Yeah. So she says, it's over, it is over. She repeated to herself again and again in nervous gratitude. The worst is over. Mary talked, but she could not attend. She had seen him. They had met. They had been once more in the same room. Soon, however, she began to reason with herself and try to be feeling less. And then it goes on and it's kind of like her two, two selves, you know, one's trying to moderate the other one. You know, mm -hmm, her mind mm -hmm. and her heart there, her feelings and her reason. And she, through the whole book, there's examples of that. And she really wants her reason to reign. And I really respect that about her. So yeah. I just don't see proof of her following her heart at all in that sense where <clears throat> she's really led by her emotions, her sensibilities, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the other side of the coin would be equally dangerous. I don't. I also don't see her just denying her feelings in her internal monologue, just not acting on them. Because you can act like, I don't feel this, this isn't real, I've moved on. And she doesn't do that either. She acknowledges this is a hurt, this is a moment, this is a thing, instead of just trying to, like, it's all over, It's not. this is a non-event. And I think... I think you can go to either side and she's so wise in that she names the feeling, but is not ruled by it. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And you know how in her titles, Pride and Prejudice, well, who has the pride, who has the prejudice? Well, they both do, you know, they both, mm -hmm. both oh my goodness. <laughs> twist, <you know? laughs> well, persuasion, it seems like Anne is easily persuaded, but plot twist, she's not. It's Wentworth, you know, that's more guided by his emotions and reactionary in that way. So I love, I love it when she does that. And I've talked before in the Austin episode about all of her heroines and heroes grow. They all have ways in which to grow. And you made it, we talked about this the other day, Tricia, you made a great comment that you don't think that Anne has as far to grow as maybe others do. Yeah, I, I do feel that way. I feel like her growth is more subtle. Um, and there even was... A time in reading it this time when I thought, does she really grow? That's because what I she's going to say. I'd love an example for y'all to give, like where you feel like yeah, you saw because she's it. she's of, of such solid, balanced, wise. I mean, as you guys were just talking about, not denying her, but even in the beginning, she's not denying her feelings, but she's not being ruled by them. Um, and I don't know that we see a huge change in any of those things as the book progresses. Like she doesn't, 
I don't think she changes as far as her character. I think she, her mind is open. Her mind and heart are opened to broader perspectives. That's kind of the way I see it. What do you think, Amanda? How do you see growth in her? So where I am at this reading is I think it is more subtle because it is a maturing in discernment. That's what I really think it is. It is wise when you are 19 to listen to advice and to follow the advice of people who know more than you do. She was already showing wisdom then. I think the difference between when she's 19 and this other time, why she says yes to Wentworth this time and why she didn't before, is she has more discernment now to take that good advice from trusted people who have lived more and know more than you do, but be able to weigh it better against your own experiences and your own wisdom. But it, you know, it's interesting that you say that because you understand why people read it and say she's following her heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because even what you just said, you could boil it down to saying when she was 19, she accepted Lady Russell's advice completely and said, if you don't think I should marry him, I'm going to refuse him and cut it off. Even though her intuition was that they were a great match and he was a really good man. And that he was going to grow into the kind of person she would want to be with. She believed that. But she turned him down and cut it off just based on what Lady Russell thought. And this time, Lady Russell still isn't behind him. No one's behind him. Her family doesn't like him. Everyone wants her to be with Mr. Elliot. But she is still listening to the people in her life. But ultimately, she is trusting her own wisdom and discernment. Do you think she grows in the course of this narrative? So I think we can see that she grows between, you know, 19 and then when this story happens. Do you think she grows within the course of the story? That's a good question. I need that's, to think on That's that for what I was questioning. I'm yeah, not sure she, she really does. grows. Yeah. I think it's like time had to complete this. Like mm. she had grown, she had had the time. I mean, we Hopefully we all grow between 19 and what, 27, 28. Um, but, but also time was the other thing that had to happen to bring it all back around. And she waited and that's, there's a steadiness there. And she had not been so walled up by her hurt that she missed a second chance. And I don't know if that's, and that's not growth within this book, but I do think that's another character trait of hers. I am processing this. That's a great question. One potential evidence of that she does slightly might be, or maybe it's just that she grows strength or confidence. And it is her family's reaction to Wentworth when he comes back to Bath and at the concert and around that time. Rude. When they are ru rude, yes, <laughs> to him. And she thinks this is not right. And I'm going to step forward, even if they don't approve, and I'm going to extend graciousness and kindness to him because this is not right. I think I might have that place marked. Yeah, I've got it here. He was preparing only to bow and pass on, but her gentle, how do you do, brought him out of the straight line to stand near her. Oh, so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell, like, that was something that stood out 
to me so much this reading is that he loves her the whole time. <laughs> it's so clear. <laughs> Um, let's see. And make inquiries in return in spite of the, of the formidable father and sister in the background. Their being in the background was a support to Anne. She knew nothing of their looks and felt equal to everything which she believed right Mm -hmm. to be done. Yeah. So I, I would say that's maybe possible evidence to show that the courage of her convictions, maybe she grows in that a little bit, maybe, but I, I, if she does, I think it's subtle. Yeah, and and I think this is subtle too. I said something about her perspective earlier, and I feel like over the course of this novel. So, have you guys ever heard the just the the short description of what a story is? Is normal explosion new normal? No, <laughs> that's good. So most stories, you know, start you have a status quo, and then something explodes it, shakes it up, and then the story is the journey the characters go on to find their new normal, right? So this story, the explosion is her father's financial Many, yeah. catastrophe. So at the beginning of this story, she is living in her father's house where she has always lived and going, you know, between there and sometimes going to stay with Mary when she thinks she's sick, which apparently is quite often. So she's going back and forth between her father's house and her sister's house, living a very quiet life, doing her duty. She's never gotten over Wentworth enough to accept anyone else. She didn't accept Charles. Um, She doesn't seem to have a lot of friends. She seems to get most of her good society and meaningful conversation with Lady Russell. And that's kind of the status quo she's living in. Then this financial shakeup happens, which causes her dad to have to move to Bath. He and Elizabeth leave. The Admiral... The Crofts come in. Of course, that brings Wentworth back into her life and all the things that that does with Charles's family, with the Musgroves, with the neighborhood, all of that. You have the trip to Lyme, then where Louisa is grievously injured, you know, in danger of dying. Um, You have the plot with her having to watch Wentworth essentially, quote, try to attach himself to one of the Musgrove girls. And she has to watch that. Mm-hmm. And all the time believing that he is essentially still mad at her, still, you know, angry at her, which he is. Um, and then when her time is up in that area, she goes to Bath. So this is a huge opening of her world. And I think if there is a subtle change and growth in her, it is that she gains confidence by being exposed to a larger world and learning to trust her own discernment. That is exactly where my thinking was going to. That was very well said. I think opportunity gave her the chance to solidify. Because like, are you going to step up or not? You know, (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah, it's the moment. It's like a moment of truth. You know, she was kind of just living quietly at home, going about her business, you know, doing good for the poor. And serving her household and, you know, doing all these things. But then when these dramatic things happen, which is why I think she's more upset with Mary than she's ever been when she keeps her from staying to nurse Louisa, because she knows she can be of real use in a true crisis. And Mary's pettiness keeps her from being able to be of real service. She knows how much more she's going to be able 
to truly help support and love everyone in that household during this crisis. And because Mary can't bear to be left out and throws a huge fit and no one can stand up to her, Mary is left who's also going to have to be taken care of, who's not going to help and who's going to cause more trouble (laughs) than she's worth. So that's why she's finally annoyed, not because of her own feelings being hurt or because she's just finally out of temper with her mad. It's because Mary's silliness is doing real harm. Do you think we could say... Do you think we could summarize what we're talking about right now with something like she is now adding action to her inner life, to her virtue, to her convictions, to her duty in a way that she hasn't before the book started? It's the action of it? Yes. And in a way, it's kind of like a test. So she has been a beautiful, dutiful, gentle, giving person, right? But then all of these circumstances come to bear. And for the first time, how she's really going to act with new people, new situations, new environs, you know, a Mr. Elliot, who is handsome, and suave and flatters her. And everyone, including Lady Russell, wants her to be with him. After being looked over and being the least favorite child and not even being wanted in her own father's house, having the attentions of someone like Mr. Elliot is extremely tempting. Like I'm thinking back to like the first real boyfriend I had, like the first time a sweet, charming, intelligent man really paid me attention. Like as a woman, it was irresistible. And she doesn't fall for that. She, as you were saying, Amanda, her sound judgment and strong inner life still prevails in those extremely tempting circumstances. Now, Austin kind of gives her a bit of a leg up in that, you know, she has a friend who just happens to have all this inside information about what a villain he is, you know? <laughs> so but she kind of helps her, her out. was just already someone else's too, you know? Yeah, so that's I mean, true. It's, it is, I think she would have done the same thing either way, honestly, though. I think... It, the rest of the book shows her character enough to be someone who would have looked and said, I'm just not sure where's the motive, but also her heart was long ago gone. There was not going to be, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. how great you are. It doesn't matter if you do turn out to be all that you seem that wasn't going to matter. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. I have a question. You could just, do y'all think that there is any comparison to be made between Mrs. Clay's marrying up which was not a good like you know maybe she hopes to attach herself to sir walter and um captain what's her guy frederick to anne like why is one desire i mean i I think i know the answer but why is one desirous and one is disgusting because she is not happy about what is this woman doing you know i think it has to do with the true character and intention of the individual Love and genuine feelings, not marriage for advantage sake. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, and good character. Like Anne is willing to marry Captain Wentworth because he's a good man. And especially at this point in the book, he has proven himself. I mean, he's a hero in the Navy, mm-hmm. which has proven that he is, he's a leader of men. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is to be looked up to. And we have every reason to believe that he could end up being an admiral, just like Admiral Croft. Yeah. And... He's a man of high moral character 
and he really loves her, which is completely different than a Mrs. Clay who does do all the service things like she has become, but also for the wrong reasons. Right. Who is a deceiver. Yeah. Who is just doing it Mm -hmm. for the money. Mm -hmm. Who is not, you know, it's interesting. Austin doesn't give us the situation. What if Mrs. Clay was truly a good, noble person who really loved him? Then would that be okay? Yeah. But she's not. She's a flatterer Mm -hmm. who is essentially just toadying to Elizabeth and Mr. Elliot in hopes that eventually she'll become indispensable and self-preservation. Yeah. Yeah. Get to marry into the family wealth. I think they, they put, she lands so much on the very simple statement. It is not a good match when there is so much like, why is it not a good match? Well, not just because of birth and you know, they, they lump so much into birth, but like, Birth would not have been the only determiner if someone's character shows them to establish themselves as a good person. I mean, now this is a fine match. Uh, I just think it's interesting how much goes into that statement. This was not a good match. Mm. You know, and it's almost like our culture can, can have a hard time fully understanding that statement and what all goes into it. Because I did have a minute where I was like, I mean, I don't like this woman either, but... And then I had to think through, like, but does, like, could she love him? No, I mean, I don't think it's that. I don't think she loves him. I think it's just self-preservation. I don't somewhere around three-fourths way into the book where there's that one conversation where she has to dip out because it's like they're not talking about her, but, well, this is my exact situation. It's awkward, so I'm going to leave the room. Um, <laughs> I wanted to kind of think through, like, what would be, are there similarities and the simple sentence of it's not a good match, just for me, I thought about it for a long time because it's like character goes into it, birth goes into it, money goes into it, truthfulness goes into it, are they actually in love goes into it. Even though everybody wasn't marrying for love in that day, but she was promoting that though. Yeah. That's a great point. I wanted to talk about Wentworth too, because we're already going long. So I want to get him in here too. I love Wentworth. I don't know. I feel for personality people out there, I feel like he's maybe like an ESTJ. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And she's maybe ISFJ or something like that. But I can see how he is good for her, even though he, like he says, like I have caused six of these eight years. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Of a trial when they didn't need to be apart. We didn't need to be apart. <clears throat> and he sees that. And it is so satisfying that he really does. And he is so apologetic and acknowledges that. And it's great. Like he reacts perfectly. <laughs> I feel like at the end of the book. Um, but his, he seems like he might have been kind of gregarious. He makes quick decisions. He is someone who can take someone's measure very quickly and probably pretty accurately. He's a very competent man. He's a leader. And I think all of these things are good for Anne. And he is one to draw her out, but also to join her in her rich inner life. Okay, so I just want to say real quick about that scene with the letter. Oh, the letter. I love it's the so letter. It's so great. Writing another letter. I loved that. <laughs> I... I love about it. One thing I love about it is in several of Austin's works, she 
sort of draws a veil over Mm -hmm. that part of it. Like in Emma, I mean, he says a couple of things like, if I didn't love you so much, I could talk about it more, essentially. But in that, in Pride and Prejudice, she kind of says, and as they walked along, they said all of the things one would expect them to say. (laughs) (laughs) And I've thought about that before. Like, it's almost like she draws a veil of privacy around them. Like it even is too intimate, which... Of course, I don't like. I'm like, no, I've waited this whole book. Tell me what he said. I want to know. (laughs) know. Um, We don't get it in Pride and Prejudice. We get a later conversation where they're kind of teasing each other. And and she says, now tell me, you know, what was it really that first attracted you? Or, you know, like, but we don't get the actual conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this one, because it's a letter, we do. We get his actual declaration and explanation of what he's thinking and feeling and we get the moment of her answer Uh and i love it so much (laughs) and it's like they're in a room with several other people they cannot talk about this yeah and they can't get alone and talk about this in an easy way at least not right now and so him writing a letter and leaving the room, it's like he's still there and they're having this conversation and reconnecting so deeply, but it's in her inner world. And that's how we receive it is through her mind because she's reading this letter. And so we know what she's thinking about it. So it's like those scenes where there's two people and they're slowed down and the rest of the room, all the people are sped up and they're like together in this room. Surrounded. Yeah. So even though he's not even in the room, it's through this letter. It kind of creates that picture though and yeah. that intimacy. And he's finally starting to really see her and communicate that to her and joining her in her thoughts instead of just being hurt, which is so easy to do being hurt and you're feeling that and you're not trying to understand what the other person is thinking and feeling. Well, he's doing it here and it's so beautiful. Yeah. But when she is talking to Harville, let me find this note here. In that conversation around the letter? Yeah. And he's saying all histories, all stories, prose and verse does not support her argument that women can feel longer or more deeply. And... She accepts his invitation to disallow these written voices on the grounds that these were all written by men. I love that. She remarks that men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. The pen has been in their hands. But just before this, Captain Wentworth dropped his pen because he was so shocked and overcome by what she was saying. And I think that's a beautiful metaphor, though, because now he's really listening to her. He dropped his pen. Yeah. I loved that part, but I missed the metaphor there. I've dropped his pen. Me too. I have four times. I've missed that. Oh, that's really awesome. I did love that part though. I mean, of like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you held the pen. Like that is not, we're not going to bring that into this conversation. (laughs) I read something that put some pieces together for me. Um, It was talking about how persuasion is different than some of other Austin's works and how in some ways this book has a very strong theme of being a book about the role of literature in our lives. And it was saying that in other Austin books, like in Emma, Knightley's always trying to get Emma to read, like read to improve your mind. Right. And 
in Pride and Prejudice, the father, uh, Mr. Bennett, is always in his library. And it's kind Mm. of the idea is sort of that he's wiser than the mother because he reads. And Lizzie's a great reader, you know, that these things open and improve our minds and, and all of that. But in this book, it's like she's saying literature is good, but it depends on what you do with it. So we open the book with her dad reading The Baronetage, which is his favorite book and the only book he ever reads. <laughs> so he's a reader, but he's a fool because this is the only book he ever reads. Mm, that's cool. And there's the whole thing where she talks with Captain Bennick and she basically tells him, like, poetry is good, but you are essentially overindulging in it. Just reading all of this mournful, dramatic poetry all the time is just exacerbating your grief. It would be good for you to temper it with some moral essays and some things that are going to help you stay grounded. That reminds me of um, Mary in Pride and Prejudice, who read a lot of sermons and other moralizing things and how she was and... um, Oh, what's his name that came and tried to court Elizabeth? That was the heir. Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins. And he was always quoting Fordyce's sermons and that. (laughs) (laughs) And in um, Northanger Abbey, she's all about the Gothic literature of the day, the pop culture fiction. um, And she is cautioning people on it, yet enjoying it at the same time. Yeah. But I I think there is... A theme in this Mm -hmm. that literature can be an important basis, but it is not as rich as real life. Mm -hmm. Like it is not the end all be all. You have to go out there in the world and experience and make choices and you make your own story. Mm -hmm. And it is not just as simple as if you read good books, you're a good person. There is much more nuance and mystery and adventure and discernment that has to be had in the world than you can get from sitting and reading a book. Well, you're a ship that hasn't left the harbor ever. Yes. Ooh, with the navy metaphor. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Love it. Well said. I next time I read this, I'm going to kind of ask that question of the book. I hadn't noticed that because Anne reads And I think she reads widely. And I think Austin is saying reading widely is good. Not only a diet of poetry or only a diet of the naval lists, (laughs) you know, and especially because, and this harkens back, the poet talking about poetry harkens back to what I said about the capital R romanticism earlier in the episode. I think she's contrasting a little bit the romanticism that was showing itself through a lot of the art and poetry of the time. And she's cautioning on that versus a rationalism. And she's trying to get Anne kind of in between those two things, I feel like. Yep. That's a good point. I love that. Because Wentworth has gone out and experienced a lot these last few years. And he comes back wiser. Yes. And that's interesting. Yeah. It's not as as simple as reading books makes you good. Mm -hmm. Not reading books makes you a fool. Like she's drawing a more nuanced picture of how literature works into our life. 
Again, she's so brilliant in how nuanced she is. She yeah. doesn't throw the baby with the bat, throw what the baby out with the bathwater <laughs> with anything. Yeah. She's like, there's value in all of these, but don't go too far and yep. don't neglect this other end. And she, I just love, I love her for that. So for yeah. today, that is, I'm so glad that you've taken up reading this year, but maybe put Colleen Hoover down for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> there are other people. <laughs> I was just wondering if I should try her. As a, That's a side note. Yeah. Elizabeth's face. Y'all should see Elizabeth's face. She's like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think Austin would I don't think Austin would advise it. <laughs> So I know we need to wrap up here. I'm just going to throw these out. Maybe the next time you read this book, if you haven't already heard these before, like like me, it took me three and four times <laughs> to see any of this. But she has metaphors in here, all f- woven throughout. One would be naval metaphors, the sea, the ocean, anchors, that kind of thing. Anne is an anchor. And she's actually more stalwart than Wentworth. Wentworth was, you know, we've kind of talked about that. Her brothers in real life, they were, she had two or three brothers that were in the Navy. So there's just some big Navy love here. Um, Also autumn or an autumnal feel. That really struck me my third time around. Like, I feel like I'm in the autumn of my life being over 40 at this point, you know, like it's not summer anymore. All right. Summer's gone. (laughs) Um, And that's not a bad thing. Um, And she's younger than I am. She's not really in the autumn of her life, but it kind of seems like she is. She's been so cloistered. Her world has been so small. She's like pale, kind of frail feeling. You kind of get that sense at the beginning. And she kind of comes back into this new spring. Her house is breaking down. It just feels like at the beginning, like things are just winding down at the beginning of the book. Yeah. So, but it, and then you have this great example in the Crofts who are in their autumn or winter of their lives. I don't exactly know how old they are. I love them. And they are having a great time, you know? So you kind of see that foreshadowing what Wentworth and Anne are going to be like together and maybe even better. So, and then this romanticism versus rationalism, those are things that you can read for next time you read this book. You can look for those things. I love it. Amanda, were there any questions from listeners we wanted to address before we go? You didn't look? Okay, let me look really quick. We covered one of them. I totally forgot to look for this. That's okay. Like, I deeply forgot. I deeply forgot. You have a thought and then you forget it and you're like, oh, right, I was going to do that. I never, I never even got there. (laughs) Uh, Someone says, how about Anne's Enneagram? (laughs) I'm thinking maybe a nine wing one. I was just going to say nine. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My gut is nine one. Yeah. That's a thought I had too. Yeah. What do you think Wentworth's Enneagram is? Six. Mm. No? No, I don't think he's a six. I'm thinking three or eight. I was going to say three or seven, hmm. but maybe a seven, eight or eight, seven, but he could be a three. I'm, I'm going to, I'm leaning towards eight. And why is that? 
Healthy eats good too, and I do see that in him hmm. also. I love this comment. I have precious little experience with this era, but is it historically accurate that people always seem to be taking sick vacations at random people's houses? It is. <laughs> it is. And I'm always just like, wow, how miserable would I be to be sick at someone else's house forever? Like I walked in the rain and I got a cold for a month and so now we're all moving in, you know, <laughs> I hit my head. So now we got to live here. <laughs> also did you look up bathing houses because i did i did not know what that uh -uh. was well no google it you know they have the bathing houses it's very funny <laughs> victorian air around swimming is very funny to me <laughs> oh yeah. yeah yeah well this was before hotels mm -hmm. they would have had inns <clears throat> along the roads but that's you wouldn't like go there to stay for long periods of time if you didn't have to. And they didn't have medications that help manage symptoms. So you did need, I think, more help, more care from other people. So I think it was a lot easier. And I think they just had better hospitality. Yeah, I think so too. And they had servants. Like, yeah. they also had servants. They had servants. So that's fine. Hey, like, we've got a room. Hey, I could... Cheryl's going to bring them some soup. Like, this is fine. <laughs> yeah, not just bring them the soup. Someone's going to make the soup. Make it Someone's going to bring it. the soup. <laughs> yeah, Someone's so. going to do the dishes. I know. All At the first, things. I was like, what? How? Uh, all right. I guess that's fine. <laughs> if I had help named Cheryl, especially, anybody could stay. Feed and care for people. I'd be like, come the on in all name. the time. <laughs> I've got Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> I need a Cheryl. I need a Cheryl. <laughs> and Cheryl, if you're listening, hello, we listener Cheryl. <laughs> I don't know if we have one, but we might. So hi. <laughs> well, Amanda, thank you so much for the work you put into this episode. That was just some really, really great thoughts. I love this book so much and I love it even more after this conversation. So what questions are we going to ask in the Facebook group for discussion? Okay. Well, what did you think? What are your overall thoughts? Have you read it before? What did you think about Anne? What do you think about gentle women characters these days? <laughs> do you want to get on a soapbox too? Go ahead. <laughs> what do you think about Wentworth? What do you think about a deep inner life and how that is portrayed? What do you think about her writing? I mean, there's so many questions. Do you Did you find other metaphors? What did you think about the letter? I want to know. Oh, I love that scene so much. I want to know if you think it's realistic that Anne turned out <laughs> is this amazing person raised in a family of so much foolery. Foolery. <laughs> That's a great question. And by the way, I want to recommend to you a YouTube channel, Dr. Octavia Cox. She teaches in England. So of course she sounds smarter. And <laughs> she's a literature professor and she has great videos. Like if you want a little bit more in-depth, a little bit more literary type talk, she breaks down dialogue. She talks about... The literary techniques Austin uses and how she was maybe the first to do it or the first to do it really well, that kind of thing. 
and it's really, really great. Like she has one video is Lady Russell Snob. She has really great videos about a lot of Austin works and many other works too. So I highly recommend her to you. So let us know what you think. If you're not a member of our Facebook group yet, what are you waiting for? Go to Facebook and search Book Fair Podcast and join us. We'll let you in. You can come and talk to us about this. I want to know what you think. <laughs> and until next time, I'm Trisha. I'm Amanda. I'm Elizabeth. And happy Austin reading. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, subscribe to Book Fair Podcast. Interact with us on our Facebook page, Instagram, and TikTok. Join our private Facebook group for community and conversation and more book recommendations than you can handle. And you can help us grow by sharing. So don't forget to tell a friend.